0: Welcome to the Ethics and Compliance Library, where each episode we will take a deep dive into an ethics and compliance book, giving you the inside scro- scoop through interviews with authors and industry leaders. I'm your host, Lauren Siegel. Today we will analyze blind spots by Anton Brunzel and Max Bazerman. Before we hear from our two guests today, let's get a lay of the land. Blindspots explores behavioral ethics from the individual, organizational, and societal levels, setting up a framework for evaluating decisions, morals, and the world around us. The book kicks off by asking readers to evaluate their ethicality compared to others on a scale from one to a hundred. If we aggregated all the scores each of the podcast listeners today gave themselves, studies show we would average higher than 50, even though the average should be 50. This alerts us to blind spots that exist in our ethicality. And yes, I did rank myself well above 50, so take that for what it is worth. There are a few key themes to call out, both as a reminder for those who have read the book and as a foundation for those who have not. First, understanding ethical behavior and the implications of ethical gaps. In the book, they state, Ethics interventions have failed and will continue to fail because they are predicated on a false assumption that individuals recognize an ethical dilemma when it is presented to them. They proceed to evaluate each of the three levels, how profit focused work environments affect the individual, how an organization's ethical gap is not just the sum of the gaps of its employees and how opt-in and opt-out situations highlight the trade-off society is making leading to future concerns. After laying the groundwork for behavioral ethics, ethical fading and gaps, they explore the traditional approaches. On page 29, the process someone makes when faced with an ethical decision is moral awareness, then moral judgment, then moral intention, and finally moral action. Max and Anne find this incomplete and state, the model presumes that one, awareness is needed for a decision to have moral implications, two, an individual's reasoning determines judgment, and three, moral intention is required for one to understand their action. These assumptions predicate the model in which many traditional ENC programs function, leading us to question the language we use that blind us, shine light on intentionality not always being a good way to judge ethics and acknowledge the limitations in human thinking. Chapter three challenges our actions next to our values, highlighting that we do not often see the ethical consequences in an action has, even if our values have us stating we would act differently. This presents itself in discrimination, overclaiming, and discounting the future. But why? Chapter four tells us it is because of prediction errors the want self overcoming the should self, and recollection bias. All this is to say that our best efforts, and I quote, we rationalize unethical behavior, changing our definition of ethical behavior, and over time becoming desensitized to our own unethical behavior. We focus on abstract principles, not the small details of our actions, the forest, not the trees. This left me wondering, how do we focus on the trees? Why are we ignoring the trees? Anne and Max navigate this question through discussing the role of motivated blindness, indirect blindness, and slippery slopes, as well as the tendency to value outcome over processes. Motivational blindness, or the tendency for people to overlook the unethical behavior of others when it is not in their best interest to notice it, comes out in situations where self-interest or confirmation bias might be present, like the financial crisis and direct blindness or the tendency not to notice unethical actions when people do their dirty work through the behaviors of others can be seen in in leaders delegating unethical behavior to others or general managers of sports teams staying silent on ethical issues related to their teams in the media. Slippery slopes then allow us to excuse ourselves of small infractions that become larger as time passes leading us to fall blind to unethical behavior in small increments, more than when they occur abruptly. This alerts us to our slowly degrading ethical behavior. Lastly, valuing outcomes over processes allows us to judge the ethicality of actions based on whether harm follows rather than on the ethicality of the choice itself. This can lead to waiting too long to condemn behavior or only condemning it after harmful outcomes occur. In situations where we know who is being harmed or see the, quote, identifiable victim effect, quote, we are more likely to punish unethical behavior. But when that lack of vividness of who is being harmed is present, we're likely to leave those behaviors unchecked. As ethics and compliance leaders, we play a unique role in in creating an ethical organization. On page 39, It is stated that even the most well-intentioned oaths and ethics programs will fail if the concept of bounded ethicality is not taken into account. We will explore this further in our interview with thought leader Philip Winterburn later. In order to build a successful program, we must analyze the informal systems as well as the formal ones, a topic we dive into in depth with Anne later. So why do our so-called ethical organizations sometimes fail? Rewards are a common way to engage employees, but it can easily go awry without checks and balances, rewarding behaviors that are, that are actually promoting unethical behavior. Sanctions, often laid out in a formal system, fail because individuals will devote extra effort to reclaiming threatened freedom, thinking about the costs and benefits of compliance versus non-compliance, rather than what is right versus wrong. Third, Humans often excuse a bad behavior by making up for it with a good one. For example, quote, setting a zero tolerance standard for unethical behavior while at the same time setting standards for honest reporting makes it more difficult for employees to attempt to mitigate unethical behavior through good deeds, meaning we must must continue to raise the ethical bar, making it harder to find an ethical balance. Lastly, And in my opinion, most importantly, we must understand informal cultures. As Anne highlights later on in the episode, these informal systems have us learn the true values of an organization. Informal cultures are formed first and often overshadow formal structures and ultimately lead to them failing. In other words, to build an effective ethics and compliance program, Leaders have to understand the obstacles, in other words, the informal culture, and set strategies to overcome them. In Chapter 7, which is industry-specific, the reader is alerted to situations that have happened or could happen in their world. Ultimately, though, while they are different problems, there are similar strategies to overcome them leading us to chapter eight, where we begin to move towards a broader consideration of how behavioral ethics can help us narrow these gaps, these blind spots. To do this, we must change ourselves by understanding the process that happens when we prepare to make a decision, when we make that decision, and how we evaluate that decision. We must change our organizations by identifying the hidden and powerful informal values identifying the sinkholes or high risk areas of an organization. We must change our society by adjusting our defaults, exposing value trade-offs, and increasing our focus on future concerns. The book closes by stating, quote, leaders should now better understand how the decisions they make will affect the ethicality of their colleagues. To better explain and express this, we have Dr. Ann Tin Brunzel with us today. Dr. Ann Ten Brunzel received her PhD and MBA from Northwestern University and her bachelor's from my alma mater, the University of Michigan. Go Blue. She is the David E. Gallo Professor of Business Ethics in the College of Business Administration at the University of Notre Dame. Ann teaches at the executive MBA and undergraduate levels. Her research interests focus on the psychology of ethical decision-making making, examining why employees, leaders, and students behave unethically, despite their best intentions to behave to the contrary. Anne is the author, co-author, and co-editor of six books on this topic, including today's discussed blind spots, and numerous research articles and chapters. Her research has been featured in interviews airing on MSNBC, PBS, and National Public Radio, References to her work have appeared in a variety of publications, including the New York Times, US News and World, World Report, Sports Illustrated, Harvard, Harvard Business Review, The Guardian, and Forbes, and in blogs for Psychology Today and Freakonomics. Today, we are excited to have Anne with us. Welcome, Anne. Anne, I am so excited to have you here with us today. Um, many of the people listening to this podcast will have read Blind Spots or have it sitting on their shelf, looking forward to reading it. And we're going to take a deep dive into it today. So, now that I've read your book, it's sitting in front of me. Make it simple for me and everyone listening. Why does this book matter? Especially given that it wasn't written yesterday. Um, there's been a lot that's changed in the world. Why does it matter?
1: Well, thanks first of all, Lauren, for for having me. Um, So I think it matters because it takes a slightly different or maybe even vastly different approach to ethics than has been traditionally true. Um, And when I say traditionally, I'm talking now maybe a decade or so ago, um, two decades. Um, And that is rather than focus on giving you ethical principles and showing you our ethical code, say, as an employee, um, which turns out to be not very effective. Um, It says, why is it that you, Lauren, as a good person who really cares about ethics, why might you stumble or really take a big fall and not realize it until it's too late for you and for your company? So it actually uses behavioral science, um, which is why uh, the field was eventually named behavioral ethics, which tries to understand not the bad apples, but why every good apple can become a bad apple? What is it about themselves intrapersonally? What is it about kind of the groups that they're a part of? And what is it about the organization that might cause someone with with strong ethical values, with the motivation to behave ethically, again, still to find themselves in an ethical trap or dilemma?
0: Definitely an evolving space and a challenging space for many leaders to be in. Thinking about how ethics within their company or within their neighborhood or as an individual how they are going to bring their full self to everything that they do and bring their their morals to to those decisions the way that it was discussed in the book is is really fascinating to me and i i'm curious what your why was why why did you write this what what drew you to writing this book and talking about uh, the research that you did, and what surprised you about it?
1: Yeah, so um, the main reason why is there was a big focus in my field when I was getting my PhD on how people make decisions that are biased from kind of an optimality perspective. And I was interested in extending that to say it's not just optimality of decisions we care about, but it's also ethicality. So what are the biases? What are the tricks? Our minds for example play on us that lead us again from being a person with strong values um, to a person that then compromises those values and then key to me is you don't realize that it's happening if you knew what was happening you'd be able to update your behavior and learn and the problem is we seem to hide this from ourselves and so i began um, this research really motivated by the fact that i think successful companies aren't just really good decision makers are full of employees making good decisions but are also making ethical decisions at the time i have to say it was it was not necessarily welcomed in the business field
2: I, can imagine.
1: Um, I always like to tell a story when i'm giving talks to companies of my first one of my first job interviews at a very well-known university and after i gave the talk a very senior person stood up and said well this is all very interesting and but what are you going to study when ethics is no longer a fad <laughs> and clearly I was so thankful not really that Enron and WorldCom and all of them came along because it really showed the seriousness of this um, and got a lot of people interested in trying to change these behaviors
0: yeah that's that's what's so fascinating about the ethics space is that so many companies up to the point of Enron and so many of those uh, those failures were focused only on compliance, but ethics, ethics takes it a step further. Compliance is following the letter of the law and ethics is, is going beyond that. And um, so much of it is intangible in the way that we think about it. Compliance is here are the policies, but ethics is much more than that. Um, is there something you wrote about in the book that you're maybe interested in further investigating or that maybe now your research that you've done has contradicted what what you wrote about in the book?
1: Well, I've continued to, um, I think, examine each of the areas that uh, we cover in the book. Um, One is this notion of why is it that we all believe we're more ethical than we think that we are. So when I'm in a room full of executives and I ask them to rate their ethicality on a scale of 0 to 100, 100 being the best, 0 being the worst, 50 being average, when I average those numbers, it should be 50 and it never is. And in fact, I ask a variety of things. How good is your driving? How good are your aesthetic skills? And in general, what we know is um, from psychologists is we all fall prey to these positive illusions, right? We all rate ourselves better. And there's some actually good reasons why we do that. But what I noticed, because I've been doing this for like maybe 28 years now, the same measurement is that the ratings of ethicality are substantially higher. Then also everybody's inflating, but we're almost hyperinflation when it comes to ethicality. So it's a real problem, because we really don't see um, where we might fall in this perception. So I've continued to examine why that is. So one of the reasons is, we predict we're gonna behave ethically. So when you're thinking, Lauren, oh, I'm gonna be in a meeting, and if that person says, suggest we do this, or maybe says a, a comment that isn't appropriate, I'm going to stand up. And yet, the time that you're in the meeting, you actually probably don't do those things. Um, so we predict we are going to behave ethically. We don't, and then we recall that we did behave ethically. So I'm beginning to look at um, who's more likely to do that, um, and what are some interventions we can we can find. We also have continued kind of the work on framing. So when you were talking about compliance, I was just on a panel a few days ago, the um, uh, legal profession and. That word came up, of course, a lot. And what, what happens is the way we see a decision has a big impact on the decision that we make. And when we see it as a compliance decision or a business decision, which to me, those are pretty intertwined, um, it turns out that we tend to make less ethical decisions. And if we said this is, has nothing to do, this is what we should do as an ethical company or as an ethical person. So we just published a paper, just got accepted on, demonstrating this showing what's different between different frames Um, and then continuing to look at kind of the ethical infrastructure of organizations their communication systems um, their sanctioning systems for um, ethical behavior their surveillance systems trying to understand how is it that we can the organization either helps or hinders converting your desire to blow the whistle your desire to kind of stop bad behavior from your actual decision to do so.
0: It's so interesting the way that companies have shifted their views on people blowing the whistle since Enron, since the DOJ update. There was an interview uh, a few years back with Huey Chen regarding her work on the DOJ corporate compliance guidance from 2017. She said that the questions asked in the guidance were really designed to get officers to think about their program. And you said that uh, the reason that you're asking all of these questions in the book is to get people to think, and that's exactly what the ethics and compliance officers have to do in their organization. But the concept of asking questions is a nice tie to the regulators request, but very challenging to do. And you've now given them a framework to ask these questions, but rather, Rather than proposing the answer you have a framework built for them. How do they put it into action? Where do they begin?
1: So I think the what I always say at the end of a a talk or anything I've written is if you've gotten nothing out of this other than Understanding that you're not as ethical as you think that you are, then I will have done my work. And so I think the very first questions have to be along those same lines. Where are your blind spots. Um, Is it so in a in some other research we're working on we're looking at um, sexual harassment and blind spots and sexual harassment and one of the more robust findings that we're seeing is that when you admire and respect somebody you actually don't think what they do is as bad as if you didn't admire or respect them so that's just one example right so one of your blind spots may be all the people you admire and respect if you hear something bad about that you discount it you might even actually shift the focus and say oh you've all you're always a complainer for example um blind spots in your reward systems right what are you rewarding and what aren't you rewarding um and what i always recommend that people do here is really think about what people perceive to be rewarded so we were doing a project on a on law firm culture it's a group of five of us And we were interviewed partners all the way down. And one of the uh, junior associates told a story. They were told never to make up your timesheet, right? It should be an exact accounting of what you do. And yet they described a story where this kind of star junior performer sat at the dinner table that they're all at and filled out his timesheet for a whole week, which was exactly against. And this person kept getting rewarded. So what does that send a signal of? They really don't care if you make up your timesheet. You'll still get promoted. So asking your employees, what do they think is rewarded? Whether it's factual or not, in their mind, it is factual. And you need to understand what they think gets rewarded, how they think the system operates. Because that's going to drive their behavior, not what you say is rewarded. Again, independent of the reality of both. I think you also have to look at what we call untouchables. So is there a department? That is untouchable, um, you look at Enron, you can clearly see you know where the untouchables were and as long as money was being made we 're not going to ask questions again, is it somebody you admire respect? Is it a group that 's isolated, kind of their own little group and maybe have developed their own norms? Um, so I think looking at who might be um, or which division might be? I was actually um, working with a company and the CEO t- said something I thought was just directly in line with this. They were going through ethical dilemmas uh, that had been incorporated in that company. And then people as a senior uh, leadership team, somebody would step and say, that was my dilemma. And then they would describe what happened. And one of them was a person that was not engaging in appropriate behavior, but the CEO kept saying what a star this person was. <laughs> over and over to everybody. Everybody knew that that was the favorite, that was the star. So everybody said, I I would hold no chance in going to tell the CEO that this person had engaged in bad behavior. It would just hurt me. So that CEO said, I'd never again will kind of distinguish among people because I want people to come to me about everybody. So again, this is taking a deep look at you and your company and saying whose behavior don't we question and going kind of after those people. Um, at least from a a question finding, as you kind of said, Lauren. Um, I did work with one company, actually, it's a big uh, NGO, and we did several sessions. And after that, what they did, it's so big and so global, where do you start, Uh, which is your question, what they did is they had, it was based on some of the things we had talked about, they had their leaders rate their ethicality and then they had their, the subordinates or employees rate their ethicality. And where there was a big gap, they started there. It doesn't mean the subordinates are wrong or right. It doesn't mean the leader is right or wrong. But what you think you're doing is very different than what your employees think you're doing. So that was how they kind of began in identifying these blind spots.
0: You said something really interesting that, and you talk about this in the book too, that you have to find uh, the, the informal culture that has been created in order, in order to really identify these changes. And that's not just conversations with leadership because oftentimes these, these things can be identified at, at mid, mid-level or, or entry-level employees and that you have to be able to find these rewards, these untouchables in order to make those changes. But many organizations are are identifying metrics to make changes, identifying these gaps with, with a pulse survey, a culture survey. How does that impact their ability to find the blind spots? Is that, is that sufficient?
1: So it would depend on obviously what the questions are, um, who they're asked of, what the expectations of the employees are in these culture surveys. It's not a bad place to, to start. Um, I personally, and I have uh, recommended this before, if I really want to know where the culture differed from what I at least told people the culture was, um, is exactly as you said, and that is to ask new employees. You put them through a whole host of, this is our company, these are our values. And within a month, they're in their job and saying, oh, this doesn't seem appropriate, right? Over time, people will become desensitized to that. And it's just the way we do business. So, getting those new employees and saying, "Where are we not where what surprised you given our training um, could be useful there's an interesting study that NASA did, and they put experienced pilots uh, and and then it, pilots that were in, completely inexperienced and they ran them through a simulation and they had obstacles on the runway, which the experienced pilots uh, should be more experienced at finding and uh, the new people, the inexperienced, found the obstacle and avoided every time. And the experienced pilots, twenty-five uh, percent time, did not see it. Wow! So, they become blind just as a result of longevity, as a re- result of social norms. So, who knows those? It's new entrants into the organization.
0: Super interesting and definitely very applicable for leaders and organizations to think about who they're who they're talking to and when. Uh, it's so easy to say, once a year, I'll push out this survey, but to, to think about the 90 days into a new role and how you're speaking with, with those employees rather than just, hey, how's it going on uh, your first 90 days, but what are you seeing? How can we evaluate these changes? Ethics and compliance leaders are, are very often viewed as the department of no and oh. No. Uh, because the people come to them with problems and things that cannot be uh, cannot be done, cannot be actioned on. And there's um, there's so many so many leaders who want to have a conversation about how how do we how do we gain budget? How do we um, make changes in our company? And so much of that has to happen with conversations that have happened with employees. Because that's where they're getting this information. That's where they're able to go to the board and say, this is actually what's happening. Let's, let's make this change. And so making the shift to the department of K N O W, knowing, is really challenging without, without that information. So going, going a step further and thinking about leaders who are new to their ethics and compliance seat in a company. They've read your book they're they're looking to do something sounds like one of the first places they should start is interviewing new employees and and getting their perspective before they're uh, potentially quote jaded how else can they take a step to address the framework that you've discussed in the book
1: so i would also um again say that they should look at how leaders are rating themselves and how um the people in their group are because i think that will help you at least start right um it's a big field out there i also think understanding those informal systems so what are the informal reward systems what do people think so that would be some of the questions you would ask of those groups um whose behavior are you not motivated to see and again i would rely on maybe more senior who would you never report something about and why right Who do you think are the untouchables? Um, I also want a really significant piece of the informal culture is the language euphemisms that we use. So we've done exercises um, with compliance groups that I'm a part of. And so, and we had people at their tables, for example, think about euphemisms. And I do this with every one of my uh, executive students as well, what euphemisms do you use in your field? And what was interesting is when we first did this in person conversation was so dead. And we thought, oh my gosh, this is a failure, right? This exercise took almost 10 minutes before you heard a little buzz. And why is that? It's because they're so embedded in the way that we talk. They wouldn't be doing their job if you could identify them very easy. Oh yes, we call it creative accounting, but really it's cooking the books, right? If it was that obvious, it wouldn't be effective. So um, now what I do is I usually have people do it before And they have to think about it. I introduce the topic and I give them, usually it's a month between when when we meet. And it could be one surgeon said, for example, you know, we say there's an organ down in room 203, not a person, right? And how does that maybe change, calling it that, change the way I might treat that, the urgency um, and the respect. And so that was just one of a million examples that we get. So, and the reason to focus on the informal culture is we have Uh, looked at informal kind of systems and formal systems. And informal systems are almost 10 times more predictive of unethical behavior um, than formal. Formal would be uh, two biggest ones being code of conduct, uh, second being training. And so you really need to look at again, what's the gossip? That's informal communication. What's the informal rewards or punishment? Do people have retaliation? by just excluding you, right? Which is a big uh, carrot or stick, depending on how you look at it in organizations.
0: Yeah, labeling, labeling behaviors, labeling words and actions in an organization can be very hard. Doing it for, for myself as an individual, as you were saying that I'm thinking about the things in my life that I say and mean something different. And that's a really hard thing to do. Organizations are, are really plagued with so many challenges on a day-to-day basis, uh, ranging from this is how I'm going to hit my quota, all the way to this is what the board told me I have to do, and now I have to figure out how to do it ethically. And it no longer is just, we have to do what is right for our shareholders. It, that's not the reality of the world anymore. Organizations that are only focused on shareholders are, are going to fall behind. They're, they're going to be seen in the public eye differently because there is a shift towards stakeholder capitalism. It, it is about your employees, it's about your consumers, it's about the board as well, it's about your shareholders as well, but there's so much more and there's so many more people involved. How do you feel that Spots supports, rejects, or amplifies the stakeholder capitalist movement?
1: You know, that's a great question, Lauren, and a significant portion of my work, as I alluded to, is this notion of how we frame the decision has substantial impact. So in this paper that was just accepted, we find that a business frame leads to more unethical behavior, but um, more important, we begin to identify what the differences are. So we find that in a business frame, we are less likely to think of others. So you just don't mention the impact of the decision on others. Um, This is people that are Trying to think of it in either a business or ethics frame, the exact same decision. Um, So you're less likely to mention others. You engage, which is interesting, in more of a cost-benefit analysis in business frame, and you're at what we call a lower lower level of control, meaning you're really focused on feasibility. What makes sense for me in this moment at this time, um, versus in an ethical frame where we think more about others. We don't engage in cost-benefit analysis. We just do. We don't there's no calculation, it's the right thing to do, right? I don't have to weigh these pros and cons, the right thing to do is this. Um, and we're at a higher level of control more, how do I desire to be, how does my company desire to be? So this question about stakeholder capitalism, I think is directly related to that work because it examines the frame by which we look at the decisions. And it's reframing, what, does a, what is a business frame? and so one of the things we have found is that if you are so let's say uh lauren you're in a business frame and i tell you to uh think about others i kind of prime you well then suddenly your behavior is as ethical as people in an ethical frame so simply intervening and that's in some sense what stakeholder capitalism as long as you can make it salient to the decision maker because you're in some sense by saying stakeholder, you're expanding whose interest. I think you're also probably increasing the control level associated with that. So if you're getting people to think broad, so high level of control, which is related to ethical behavior, just means I, I have a broader, I'm more at a forest level rather than a tree. And I think that's what stakeholder capitalism is doing as well. The cost benefit analysis, it's really strong. So if you're in an ethical frame, And then I then tell you to weigh the pros and cons of your decision. You are as unethical as somebody in a business frame. That I don't have an answer. So that's something that really needs to be investigated. Cost benefit analysis is awesome. It's a great tool. I'm an engineer. I love it. When I decided which university to go to, I had my whole kind of cost benefit. still 25 years later. um, Some, a lot of government proposals require it, but there is something about engaging in a cost benefit analysis that leads you to more unethical decisions. And so I think we really just need to think about why that is. There's some research that shows that um, it causes you to, um, it leads to more depersonalization, which again then would be related to thinking about others. So I think we have to rethink kind of this cost benefit analysis to make sure we're including the right inputs in it.
0: So one last question for you. I think that one of the hardest things about being an individual who cares about ethics, going into a business that must be compliant and is looking to bring ethics into that, is thinking about how how you can make those changes. And you can do it with interviews with new hires. You can do it uh, by understanding the informal structures. But ultimately, you're required to have a helpline. You're required to have a code of conduct, you have all these requirements that are put on you, and those are the formal structures that often fail us. How can we think about these formal structures in a way that doesn't limit our ability to identify the informal?
1: That's a great question. It's not like they don't matter, right? They just matter to a smaller degree. So um, I, I would never want to go on the record to say that formal systems don't. They sure do. I think where you run into problems is when that's, that's all you do. And you feel like, yep, we checked the box on these formal systems. If you think about most formal systems and even compliance, it creates a floor. And if that's all we have, we are going to, we know from decision-making research, we're going to anchor to that floor. And then there might be this slippery slope that occurs that even brings us be below that floor, because we've justified ourselves that this is OK from some of the biases we talk about in the book. So what's really important is you, is that you have an aspiration. So it's beyond just this, this is the minimum and this isn't going to be acceptable. This is what, and you should have something that you're striving for. That is something that people can actually attach themselves to. So um, one of the things we say in the book uh, example, we give is a company where um, they tell four stories. It was one of their training of people, uh, who are now vice president and above. And it turns out that they all blew the whistle when they were uh, new employees. And they that's at the end, but it's, it, it really shows this is what we want, this is what we will reward. So it's in negotiations research, um, which I've also done, you talk about a reservation price, this is the bottom line. And then you talk about your aspiration. And the point is you can't have either of those alone. So if all you have is your reservation price, in this case, the formal programs, That's all you'll do. You will anchor on that and that's about where you'll end up. If all you have is this lofty aspirations, well, there may be frustration because you're never going to get there. It may be impossible, but when you have both, you shouldn't focus on either. You will actually find hopefully some place in between. And then I always think we should look at how organizations learn and innovate, bringing that in to say that every day is we still need to be better. So this notion of continual improvement.
0: Well, and as we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners today about blind spots about the field of behavioral ethics?
1: I think we've kind of said it all, um, but I would say that it's a it's a noble career. Actually, I think of those in the compliance space. I've talked to so many of them. I admire them. They lose sleep. They don't take this lightly. Um, I think there have been great sources of support that I have seen in conversations like this and in conversations among them. I know some of the people that are in some organizations that are in the spotlight right now, and I've talked to them and they said, it's this group that I can, you know, really try to, um, and it's across industries that I can, you know, begin to identify where we go from here. So I think it's, realize you're not alone. I think it can be a very lonely field. <laughs> um, yeah, but the more kind of networks you can establish, the more ideas I think you'll have.
0: That's wonderful. And um, it's almost like you were plugging the Converge community where we can continue this conversation uh, around blind spots, around uh, behavioral ethics, talking with your peers globally uh, to continue learning in this space. So thank you so much. And I really, really appreciate your time today. I know all of our listeners were very excited to Uh, engage in this conversation with you. So we look forward to uh, opportunities to continue learning with you in the future.
1: Great, thank you very much, Lauren.
0: Next, we are joined by Philip Winterburn, co-founder and chief strategy officer of the organization I am so grateful to work for, Conversant, an ethics and compliance software company immersed in thought leadership to help the modern ethics and compliance leader to drive ethics to the center of business. Philip has a unique passion for the book we are discussing today, so much so that he tells every new team member to read it. Welcome, Philip. Our listeners are excited to hear from you and learn more about how you have seen the framework from blind spots applied in organizations. Philip, it is so nice to have you on the podcast today. Uh, we are talking about blind spots. As you know, there's so much to dive into here, but the the place that I want to get started is at the very beginning. And for me, that's the first time I heard about blind spots um, was from you. I started in my role at Conversant and within the first week of any employee starting at Conversant, they're hearing about blind spots from you. Why is this book so important?
2: So first of all, thank you for doing this podcast. This is awesome and the topic is fantastic. Um, So why am I passionate about this one book? Um, Because, frankly, it was the first book that got me really hooked on what I see as the fundamental challenge to all uh, organizations, which is, it's not about catching the bad guy. It's about how do we help the normal, everyday human being stay on the straight and narrow because we are flawed individuals, we make mistakes, and in fact, we can fool ourselves into believing we didn't make mistakes. There's so many layers to this. And it, this book really opened my eyes to that challenge. And that's why I think it's so fundamental to anyone joining Conversant to have this as a foundation for what we do as a company. Um, it, it's just a great start.
0: Awesome. And, mm- when when we think about this book, there's obviously the 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 ethics piece of it, but there is some compliance conversation in this too, and the two are very intertwined. Um, we often talk to leaders in the industry about how ethics and compliance are different, and they have they have different definitions. And you talk to five people and get six six answers, right? So when you think about how ethics and compliance work together, how does blind spots give a framework for a leader to think about the two in combination with each other.
2: I think there 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 are some fundamental pieces of this that resonated so strongly with me when I first read it um, that now actually, and I'll, I'll tie this together in a moment. But now actually resonated even stronger for everybody. But what caught me at the beginning when I read this was a big part of the conversation in this book talks about the importance of um, understanding in an organization what the true values are, what the true, who the true leaders are. Is this organization driven by um, sort of engineering excellence or is this organization driven by sales that can can affect how decisions are made? Um, And so, and at the time, um, we as a company conversing, we have always been very values driven. And so that message resonated strongly. Fast forward now, eight years later, and the, the stakeholder capitalism movement that now acknowledges the five stakeholders versus the shareholder, and the, the ensuing work around ESG that we've seen emerge, and the work coming out, Um, from the IBC around the 21 stakeholder metrics, all of this is now showing that realization um, that understanding the true purpose of a company, understanding the true values of a company, and the real leadership within a company actually defines that organization and how that organization will act and behave. And so if you want to um, adjust or attempt to modify the behaviors of a company, you have to, first of all, understand and identify what those true values are and true purpose, not the ones printed on the wall, but the real ones that are underneath everything and who the true leaders are. Tie that together. And that's how you can then start to influence those and actually change culture. One of the biggest challenges any organization has, how do you actually change morph culture going forward?
0: So you, you just drew an interesting connection between formal and informal structures that are in place within an organization um, and to the stakeholder capitalism movement, uh, the, the shareholder versus the stakeholder, informal versus formal. I, I'm curious, can you expand upon that a little bit more and how you see the two connected and driving an organization forward?
2: Formal has very little bearing. It's the informal that is the real engine in the organization. Um, If that informal uh, structure, motivation, uh, values, uh, structure is different to what is um, espoused, that dissonance is where you get yourself into trouble. Um, As you look at stakeholder capitalism, and I'll focus on a couple of key stakeholders, so one being employees, the other one being customers, and the last one being the community in which you operate. If if you espouse to be a great employer, and you espouse uh, to have a, a wonderful product, and you espouse to be doing good in your community, and yet the underpinnings, the informal, the real values of the organization are contrary to that, those will very quickly be felt by your employees, by your customers, or by the community in which you're operating. And when those are felt, um, they today will now be broadcast, right? Everybody has an amplifier called social media, as in fact we're doing with this podcast.
0: Very scary.
2: Yes, very scary. So any voice, any word can be taken and amplified around the world instantaneously and multiples uh, of that. And so, um, yes, those informal structures are they they are who you are as a company, and they will your company will be judged based on the informal value structure, informal purpose, informal leadership structure in the company, not by the formal one anymore. Your PR firm can't save you.
0: So when when you think about how stakeholder capitalism has has evolved, uh, really in the past few years, especially and Um, with some of the recent events in the last year, how how that's changed the way that companies view stakeholder capitalism. It can be really challenging as an ethics and compliance leader to act on that, to do something with this movement um, and and allow the organization to move forward um, with that in mind because it is the job of an ethics and compliance leader to make sure that the organization is protected. But protecting against formal structures is a little bit easier than protecting against informal. So I'm, I'm new in the ethics and compliance space um, or speaking to a new uh, leader in an organization, a new CECO. How do I
2: do this? So I would first of all uh, challenge part of what you said there that the job of the CECO is to protect the organization. I think that is what it used to be. I think the job of a CECO is actually now to empower and protect the organization. I think there is an opportunity for chief ethics and compliance officers to recognize this movement, this shift that is occurring, and understand that if they can embrace this, then they can position themselves their, and their departments and their teams, and in fact, their company, um, far more strongly as business partners, as enablers, rather than just the defenders of, of legal wrongdoings, which I think is, a, is an old world, older world view. So I, I think there's an opportunity there. So that's where I would then say, so to the professionals in this industry, um, chief ethics and compliance officers, I think this is a key moment in the evolution of this profession. I think you can go back go back 10 years and it was very much a compliance profession it evolved into ethics and compliance and it's evolving again it's continuing to move forward the ESG movement is something we should be jumping on as a profession because it creates a strong a stronger message of relevance and impact in your company if you can be a part of that ESG movement because the the realization is we are moving down this track. We are not rolling back ESG. We're not rolling back stakeholder capitalism. And so if that is the case, if that's where we're going, then the old world view of ethics and compliance has to evolve or die. And so the opportunity I think is to embrace this, jump on it, and let's look at the new metrics that are published, the 21 key core metrics, Uh, that they came out with. How can you, as a Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer, dive into those and identify the ones that you can actually impact or elevate or provide transparency around and start bringing them up in the organization and actually create that movement and fuel that movement and be seen as a leader in that conversation?
0: It's exciting. It's it's hard. Change is hard. But there there's definitely passion in your voice when you're talking about this and i think in in understanding more about the industry every day there's so many ethics and compliance leaders who have this vision of what the, the industry looks like and are no longer wanting to explain to their friends and families and co-workers what they do as check the box so we're, we're moving into this new space of ethics and compliance, and there, um, there's, uh, why can I not use words? I, I heard uh, a, a podcast with Brene Brown, who was talking about the, the relationship between trust and vulnerability, that if you are asking employees to speak up to be vulnerable, there has to be trust built. Otherwise, you're just asking them to be compliant. So as we think about how to, how to create trust, Anne says that part of that is helping your team, your leadership to understand those informal structures. And one of the ways she suggests doing that is interviewing new hires who aren't yet in a position to see the organization in a certain way. Um, I'm curious, how else do you feel that leaders can begin to understand the informal structures to build trust in their organization to allow employees to speak up?
2: Trust to me is at the core of all of this. Um, And Tom, when you talk to Tom about this, he knows I talk a lot about organizational justice I think that is fundamental. If your organization does not have a, I'll use the word perception, because it's perception that counts in this case, a perception of organizational justice, then you will erode trust and you you will fail. Um, So I think anything you can do to promote the perception of organizational justice, ideally the actuality of organizational justice, um, goes a long way. People need to know that the the rules apply no matter where you are in the organization. And we've seen in 2018, 2019 record levels of CEO departures for transgressions. And that speaks to that organizational justice. So although it's horrifying to hear the stories, it's rewarding to see people being held accountable that no longer um, high performers being allowed to cross lines that they shouldn't cross. Um, I also think there's another area where we we talk about tone at the top um, in organizations. And I, I actually think that does us a disservice. It's more about action at the top. People have to walk the talk. So the quarterly email from the CEO espousing ethical performance and behaviors is not the right solution. It's what does that person actually do when they're walking around the shop floor and talking to people. Um, how do they treat individuals, um, how are decisions reflected in the organization? That's what really makes an impact. And because people don't see the CEO very often, what's more impactful is the line management and Mm -hmm. how are they walking the talk. And so how do you bring ethical behavior, um, and awareness down into the depths of the organization? so that you know that the layers of management that you have are walking and espousing these values. Um, Mary Gentile has a a wonderful program called uh, Giving Voice to Values. And to hear her talk, she spoke at Converge um, in October. Her program of actually giving people workshops where they can create the muscle memory of talking to these things and how they would respond to certain decisions or questions is so powerful and resonated for me i think it's a wonderful mechanism to carry forward the the one hour online training that you get through powerpoint death is is a complete waste of time and actually is counterproductive but putting people in a workshop environment where they can discuss and share ideas and thoughts that's where you have real power to what you're doing
0: i I'm really excited to get the opportunity to interview Mary for the next podcast, reading, Giving Voice to Values. And you, you touched on, on something interesting that organizations are, are having to think of new ways to walk the talk when we're in a remote environment. And moving forward, organizations Likely, in most cases, will not be all completely in the office. They won't be able to show that they're walking the talk. In your experience of working with organizations in all industries at all levels, how have you seen this done in, in a way that we can actually action today?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Before I answer your question, I'm going to. Yes, read please. Which is actually from. Uh, Max and Ann's book, right? Blind Spots, what we failed to do, uh, what's right and what to do about it. There's a fascinating page, page 164. They talk about identifying ethical sinkholes in the organization. And there's three particular sinkholes they pull out. Uncertainty, time pressure, and isolation. Now reflect back on 2020. What did we do to people? We isolated them. We gave them a heck of a lot of uncertainty. And in most cases, we put them under a lot of time pressure. So the challenge that organizations faced in 2020 cannot be understated. I mean, this book was written, what was it, 10 years ago almost. Yep. And those are the three things they called out, and we walked right smack into them in 2020.
0: It's funny, wow. first of all, that you <laughs> that you know the page, that you know those things is great, and it just shows the passion that you have for this book. but. I think there's, there's also something to be said for change being a constant. And it's something we talk about every day with ethics and compliance leaders that the, that you can read a quote from the recession back in 2008 that you would think was written yesterday about the pandemic. And there's so much of that that, that you see in this book and that's why it is such an important piece.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so to answer your question, which is about isolation, um, how, do we, how do we do this remotely? Um, so yes, I, I do believe that even after vaccinations and everything and we start going back to work, I believe there will be an increase in people working from home um, as a result of, of what we've gone through. I, I also believe that we are gonna be back in the office. So I think it's gonna be a hybrid model because we do crave that social interaction very and, much. And the, business, the, yeah, the business benefits from those casual um, sort of encounters that you get that create knowledge transfer and innovation. But um, what can we do in the interim? I've, I've seen some interesting ideas. I mean, people have been doing things like um, an ethics compliance group in a Dutch organization that was booking time on screensavers and their IT group was able to push uh, messages onto screensavers so they would have like the lunchtime slot on a Tuesday whereas the ethics message for the week popping up on people's screensavers um, which is a wonderful, I think, a- idea to, to re-engage. Um, I think we're, we're all Zoom fatigued um, but the use of video messaging is is much stronger than an email and so as an ethics and compliance leader or as a CEO in a company I think it's very powerful to do a short, it's 15 seconds video on your iPhone and send that out. Um, reminding people, asking people, talking to people, whatever the, the tone is that you wanna send out. But having a very um, a deliberate approach to the communications you're sending because because your interactions are now more limited than they were before, because people aren't walking down the hallway and seeing the posters because people are losing connection with the values of the organization because they're not living in them. And they're now reverting to the values of their home, which can be different. Um, I think we have to over rotate and increase that communication outbound and learn from our marketing friends as to how how does marketing work? How do you get messages out? How do you engage people in a digital world? And there there are absolutely ways to do it. There are patterns to use. Uh, doing that in terms of video outreach, web-based communications, injections on screen savers, wallpaper, um, login messages when you connect on your computer, you get a first message. There's all sorts of techniques you can use to do that.
0: As we move into an ethics and compliance space where we're being asked as leaders who are ethical, not just as ethics and compliance leaders, but any organizational leader to do more with less, to, uh, to make a change in the organization when the organization has fought change. How do we take the things that are given to us in this book, how do we take this framework and take small steps? What is our first small step to look at so that we're not taking on a project that is going to fail?
2: The easy answer is it depends, because it does. But I'll give you a more specific answer, because that's a little bit of a cop out. <clears throat> I would say um, the f- if you're starting with a blank sheet of paper and you're looking at 2021 and saying, what am I going to do this year? My budget's been cut x percent. Um, but there's this whole ESG movement and accountability and social media tweets happening all over the place. What am I going to do? How, how do I handle this? So I've got less resources and bigger risk, more risk. Um, first of all, it should always start with a risk assessment because you have to tailor this to your particular risk landscape. Um, so where, where are your challenges? Um, but secondarily, specifically to this conversation, I would say taking the time to really understand the true values, the true leadership, um, and the true purpose of this organization. So you get a feeling for the real culture that's here. And if you've been in the company for 10 or 15 years, you may have a strong feeling of what that is and maybe have someone else do the research for you. It is just talking to people and going and digging in to get that information. But identifying that writing that down and holding that up as a a statement of fact of this is what actually we're operating with is, um, will give you clarity in terms of how you then address the risks you've identified in your risk assessment. So that's where I would start.
0: Wonderful. Well, you've given listeners a lot to think about, uh, a lot to act on. Uh, I will close with one final thing. I, I lied. My last question was not the final one. Is there anything else?
2: There is one more thing I would say. Um, This is the most exciting time, not just in ethics and compliance, but in business. I think the the business world as we know it is going through a fundamental shift that has been uh, driven by a whole bunch of technology changes and advancements, societal changes and advancements, but we now live in a world where organizations are being held accountable for their actions at unforeseen levels. Um, And as a result, organizations are shifting in general to be better versions of themselves. And um, I, I think it's such an exciting time to see that movement happen where one by one, these companies are moving to higher causes to altruistic purposes to um minimizing their impact on the environment and completely shifting their perspectives of what they're doing and and how they make money Um, and it's it's just so incredibly exciting and empowering i i'm super excited to see the future i think ethics and compliance itself is positioned really well to capitalize on it and if five ten years from now we haven't then that's our own fault for not taking this opportunity because the opportunity is right there in front of us to be grasped. So I encourage everyone who's listening to this, grab it with both hands. Let's dive straight in and let's have some fun with this. It's going to be awesome.
0: You heard it here first, everyone. It's time to pick up, dig deep, put on your gloves and, and get down into the nitty gritty of ethics and compliance of changing the business world. Thank you, Philip. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you again to Dr. Ann Ten Brunzel and Philip Winterburn for their time and expertise presented in today's episode on Blind Spots. As mentioned briefly in Anne's interview, we will continue the conversation in the Converge community. That is converge.conversant.com. Over the next two months, I will be reading Mary Gentile's Giving Voice to Values, a book that is actually mentioned in Blind Spots. I hope you consider reading along with me and sending questions to me for me to ask Mary during the next episode of the Ethics and Compliance Library. I'm looking forward to diving into giving voice to values in episode two, airing late May, 2021. Thank you for listening and thank you for leading.